Huxley basically argued if people would lose their freedom because they were so entertained by screens, by entertainment, uh, by pop culture, that they would voluntarily give up a lot of their personal information and a lot of their agency. There's no doubt that Orwell got everything right, I think, in my opinion, except one thing, perhaps. Government, I don't think that's going to be Big Brother. You know, I think it's going to actually be a combination of Amazon, Google, and Facebook. It's about unlimited access and power. These companies know you better than you know yourself, and they know everything you do and say in private, and they also understand how to manipulate that knowledge. Public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua and today's episode will be the final episode in the very long interview that I did with Benjamin Jacobs. This will wrap up our discussion completely and where we left off in the previous section He was talking a little bit about the technology of the printing press and how that was used and the effect that that had, especially on the Reformation. And so I will just go ahead and get right into some of the comments that I had related to what he said there, and we'll continue on with the interview. Well, you're right. I've got plenty of parallels. (laughs) I won't get into all of them here. But yes, it's interesting. You're talking about how they're using this technology to spread propaganda and maybe manipulate people through small little bits of information that are focused on flaring up emotions and dividing Mm -hmm. people. That that, that definitely sounds familiar. I don't think I have to play that out too much here. (laughs) Arguably Um, just persuading them of their own viewpoint, but certainly, yes, yes, of course. Uh, It's for their own good, and we're just teaching them what they need to know. There's more and less charitable versions of it, certainly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It it depends on your perspective, I guess, like most things. So, and you also mentioned that they couldn't censor things in time, that all this all this information, all these inflammatory writings were getting out there and getting out there very quickly and getting passed around and going viral, so to say. And I guess that's very similar to something like uh, maybe WikiLeaks is a good example, or there's plenty of others like it, where you have this information that's very inflammatory and it might be against the uh, standard institution, like against the state Mm -hmm. or against corporations or whatever. And this information is just out there. We have the internet and we can get it. Anybody can access it. And maybe it'll get censored at some point and maybe videos will get taken down after a short amount of time. But usually by then, it's out there. The idea is out there. The ideas are circulating. Uh, but yes, oftentimes it's more of a pamphlet size. It's, you know, and a, a headline really, or a tweet, yeah. or it's something so small and you've got people that get so inflamed about it. It's very uh, interesting and sad to watch debates on yeah. Twitter and Facebook where it's these tiny little, you know, three sentence comments where it should be like an entire book if you really wanted to logically yeah. explain your argument but <laughs> yes. they don't do that and yeah. when you have that atmosphere and that environment uh, it is a lot easier to manipulate it is a lot easier to uh, inflame these these conflicts that are already there people already do have disagreements on a lot of these things you've got mm-hmm. issues like guns and abortions and religion and there's all these different things that you know obviously lots of people have many different opinions on and so if you have people that are very easily stirred up and you in 
you insert some of these very inflammatory comments or an article here, an article there, a news story there. And yeah, you can definitely get things going pretty easily. And yeah. there are, I guess, powers and alliances behind the scenes that definitely want certain movements to succeed and certain movements maybe to not get a lot of steam. Right. You've uh, definitely got a lot of things with, uh, uh, what's her face? Greta, Thun Is it Greta Thunberg or Thunberg? I don't know. Um, but you've got her, the big face of climate change today, and uh, she strongly believes in this, and that's an honest belief, and climate change is an actual issue that intellectually can be backed up, and it is logical. But at the same time, you have many uh, powers behind the scenes. You have this media attention and money behind it that is going into her traveling all around the world, all these different countries, giving these major platforms, spread all over news networks, face everywhere. And that that's not really organic or natural. There, there is something uh, behind that. There are forces, people, company, you know, whatever. I, I don't know. I honestly don't know at all. I know her boat when she sailed across um, the ocean to come to America uh, was owned by the Rothschilds. And you have plenty of conspiracy theories about the Rothschilds. But um, her, there's just all this stuff behind it that the movement itself is something that actually exists. And it's a legitimate debate. And you have that with these religious debates going on during the Reformation. But a lot of times it seems like you have these other powers and these other people and players that want to use this divide and use this conflict to gain their own political power and to make money. You mentioned the, yeah. the printer that was making a lot of money off of Luther's writings and other writings, yeah. and that there was a lot of money and wealth to be made there, just like uh, you could argue with any of these modern movements that go on. There's a lot of money behind green energy and things like this. And so yeah. it's not to discredit uh, the arguments and the things that are going on there, but uh, reality is that there's stuff that goes on behind the scenes. There's people that want power and groups and yeah, there's, it's, it's complex. It's not just yeah. a very simple thing that, Oh, it's either this or that. There's, there's a lot of forces behind the scenes that kind yeah. of steer these things. So one, one similar parallel to, to talk about is the, the witch trials. Yes. Uh, which <laughs> this is that era. Uh, something like 60,000 people were killed. Um, over the course of the, the period of the witch trials, a lot of times people assume that that was the Middle Ages. But actually, they didn't really start until uh, the 1300s. Um, and really, after that, substantially after that, they didn't really get going until you get, sort of get into this, this early modern period with the Thirty Years' War and the Protestant Reformation and everything. A lot of people also assume that it was the Catholic Church that was doing it actually as many, you know when you break it down by population, the, the Protestants were as likely to do it as the Catholics. Uh, and, you know, Luther had this whole screed he wrote about witches, uh, which got, went to some really odd places. Uh, he was he an thought, odd individual. <laughs> he, he thought that witches were living in his butter churn and stealing the butter. And so he would poop in the butter churn. Oh, good strategy. <laughs> um, or at least that's what he said anyway. Um, but, when you look at the the spread of these witch trials, they they tended to be driven by these pamphlets, uh, in a in a way that's only you know now modern historians are, are starting to untangle it. Uh, there were books that helped 
Um, and there was definitely pre-existing things like European society was heavily misogynistic. And, you know, you see that in the fact that many, many more women were killed than, than men. But that said, you know, European society was always misogynistic and they didn't just randomly kill 60,000 women <laughs> at any other time in history. <laughs> You know, uh, they weren't all 60,000 weren't women, but, you know, you know what I'm saying? Most of them. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, there's there were these there's this really you can track like there will be pamphlets. And then a couple weeks later, and these pamphlets are like talking about witch trials in a different town. And they they'd make up most of the stuff. Um, Often there actually was a witch trial, but the the pamphlet would report things being much more open and shut than they actually were. And they'd give all these graphic details about how the heroic townspeople, you know, tracked down the witches and killed them horribly. And, you know, and then the next thing you know, you know, you know, poor widow Jenkins is, is being accused of being a witch. Why? Because no one liked her. And she mumbled <laughs> that one time <laughs> and then a bad thing happened three weeks later you know um <laughs> uh what's what's interesting is it's people were definitely making money off of these pamphlets but it's really hard it, it's essentially impossible to view this from the context of sinister forces at work because the the you know the forces of law and order usually tried to stop it and then got knocked over Um, mob mentality (laughs) yeah exactly a mob mentality developed this gets to the the thing i said before about um pieces of society not being monolithic that you sort of had these low-level printers who were you know the the printers were probably one of the first industrial enterprises in europe but at this time we're not talking about like huge factories churning out hundreds you know, of, of, you know, pamphlets or anything. We're talking about pretty small scale productions and it's, you know, uh, just this entrepreneur just being like, how can I hawk more pieces of paper with stuff on them at the next market? Uh, you know, here's a thing I can do that'll, that'll move, move pamphlets. And, uh, and these things were cheap. Um, you, the, the point of pamphlets was that, you know, even a, a normal working person could afford them, uh, as opposed to books, which were still fairly expensive and intended for more well-to-do audiences. Um, and so, you know, even though, you know, the church may be sort of bought into the witch thing, they never were really comfortable with it. And even though society as a whole was very suspicious of women. And even though society as a whole was very suspicious of poor people, and these were often people that no one liked, you know, it's not like there was some sort of grand conspiracy of, you know, cardinals and bankers and everything all together <laughs> in a room going that widow Jenkins, we're going to get her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was just some, some guy trying to sell stuff and it, it, it was, you know, did it in an irresponsible way that, you know, blew up and got hundreds of people killed. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So I guess um, just like the printers were not necessarily sinister, uh, platforms on the internet are not necessarily sinister. <laughs> They're just platforms. They're uh, and even some of the companies behind them oftentimes are just trying to make money. And it's not that they're trying to push a specific agenda or, you know, steal all this power or have this conspiracy behind the scenes. Although some may, you never know. But in general, um, that's, that's not probably what's going on in the broad sense. It's also interesting that you mentioned fake news is not a modern phenomena that that (laughs) has happened for a while. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I can agree. But if you look at maybe a parallel that might be better than the witch trials for things going on today, it might be something like the Inquisition, where you had, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'll state what I remember at least, would be that <laughs> you had um, Isabella and Ferdinand in Spain, that an Inquisition started, they got permission from the church, and this was kind of a church deal at first. And then um, they kind of took it over. The church wasn't very comfortable with it, the way it ended up going down. And Mm -hmm. basically the nobility kind of took some of this power and the role that the church should have played and took it upon themselves to carry this out. And if I am accurate in this, then (laughs) it would play out in the um, modern parallel of maybe tech firms that might take this role of censorship that most people might feel the state might be responsible for, and um, maybe they'll take it upon themselves to uh, take this very uh, powerful tool of censoring what you can and can't see. So was I accurate in remembering that? It's a little bit more complicated. Of Um, course. (laughs) Of course. The Inquisition was a general thing in most Catholic countries, um, it, it was a, a tool that the church had, and they would deploy it for reasons. Uh, the, it started out in southern France as part of the Albigensian Crusade, uh, which there was a, a heretical sect called the Cathars or the Albigensians. Um, you know, what name they called themselves isn't always clear. Uh, but in any case, um, there was a crusade. It took a while, but eventually all the powers that were even sort of protecting the Cathars were destroyed. Uh, But then it was like, well, how do we know which ones are Cathars? And uh, the church came in and set up an inquisition. Uh, The term inquisition just sort of means a judicial process. (laughs) Um, And it was set up following, you know, what was considered a normal judicial process at the time, which of course means that it's horribly unfair to modernize. Um, What sort of really made it, there were seeds of uh, real problems even at that early stage because um, it was essentially being imposed by military force from outside the area. And, you know, there were a variety of incentives to report people, uh, to this, you know, uh, judicial process for effectively for thought crimes. And if um, you were found guilty, oh, and uh, following all the best legal precedent from the Roman Empire, uh, judicial torture was legal. Of course. (laughs) Uh, And so, um, you know, people could be tortured for confessions. And, um, and then if you were found guilty, potentially you, you would not just be killed, but all your property would be taken and given and split up between like the church and the people who accused you. Hmm. So 
even at this early stage, it's really problematic. Uh, and, you know, is gen- generates, uh, basically Southern France has really never forgiven Northern France for this. Um, and then it spread. Um, it, there was a related group called the Waldensians who were sort of operating in the area of what we would now call Switzerland that was sort of next to uh, where the Albigensian crusade happened. And the, the inquisitors ended up going after them too. And it, it basically became any, any uh, ideology that was supposed to have any kind of organizational apparatus behind it that needed to be taken apart. Uh, the, the inquisition was supposed to be the thing that would go after that. The first really big witch trial happened, you know, as they're going after the Waldensians, someone comes up and says, uh, and this is during the Council of Constance, just to tie all this together a little bit more. um, Someone says, and up to this point, actually uh, saying that witchcraft was a thing was actually considered a heresy in the church uh, because you know, that implied that the devil had power or that humans could have power. And, you know, that, that was basically the, the party line of the church is that witches were all charlatans. Hmm. But um, in the context of we have three popes, we've got a crusade going on over here. We've got this huge inquisition. Someone comes to the, the council of Constance and says, there's a, uh, a secret society of witches in this valley that are teamed up with the devil and they've created an organization and they're doing bad things. And Council of Constance says, oh yeah, you can have an inquisition, go for it. And that was actually one of the first major witch trials that killed like hundreds of people. Um, and that then resulted in the writing of the, the Hammer of the Witches, which is one of the famous books that was written about hunting witches and stuff like that. So in terms of the Spanish Inquisition, this is just another one of these Inquisitions, and they all always sort of happened as sort of a team-up effort between secular authorities and the church authorities. Um, What's special, what had happened with southern France and, and going into Switzerland and everything was that basically the secular authorities had, who were local and had ties to the community, had all been removed because of this this uh, heresy in the crusade. And so this was an inquisition that was cooperating with the local authorities, but the local authorities were all essentially foreigners from the point of view of the Middle Ages. In Spain, what you had was um, a new centralizing monarchy um, that was then coming into an area that had been essentially it had been the most diverse place in Europe for centuries. Um, The Muslim and Jewish and Christian communities had lived together in Spain in very large numbers for a very long time. And over the course of, um, you know, the last century or two uh, before the 1400s before the, you know, 1500 or so, um, you know, so, 1300 on, 1400 on. Uh, There was a series of political conflicts. Um, Basically, the Jews ended up getting protected by people who ended up losing those conflicts. 
and um, the their role as the agent slash uh, payday lenders of the king <laughs> had not ingratiated themselves to anybody, and uh, they got blamed for a lot of society's ills, especially after the Black Death broke out and things like that. It, it was never you would never want to be a Jew in the middle ages, but, um, long story short, a series of civil wars ended with the result that Jews were compelled to convert. And then the issue became, well, how do we know they mean it? Ooh. Well, they don't, of course they don't mean it. You just forced them to do it. (laughs) But, you know, at that point, um, you know, you're, you're sort of ideologically, you're, which is why, you know, no less an authority than St. Augustine of Hippo said that you shouldn't compel people to convert, you know, because, you know, if for no other reason, then you don't know that they mean it. <laughs> Free will is one of the biggest tenets in the Bible, I believe. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. So um, he had a bunch of other, you know, rationales. And of course, it's more complicated. But anyway, you know, so... The, the the Inquisition came in because people were accused of being, uh, you know, crypto Christians that they were faking it, and then of course once the once you combine the power of the new centralizing monarchy with the really with the use of judicial torture and the institutionalization of property confiscation, uh, things got out of hand uh, really really fast, uh, but it was politically expedient for the monarchy to continue doing it. And um, yeah, and it it just, it kept going for decades. Uh, And, you know, it was a humanitarian disaster to say the least. Um, Arguably uh, drove a lot of capital out of Spain and, and helped undermine their ability to modernize and industrialize. Um. But I I think one of the interesting things is that we know now that they weren't wrong (laughs) in terms of the fact that uh, a a bunch of studies uh, and, you know, uh, anthropological studies. And there's been a bunch of work recently, which has shown that there's actually a ton of people all over the world who are of Spanish descent who do things like. You know, they'll they'll go into their house, they'll turn they'll turn off all the lights, they'll pull the blinds on you know Friday night and they'll light candles, and they don't know why. It's just <laughs> something that their family's been doing. And then they'll you know on Sunday they'll go to church, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and it's just there were there were definitely you know these uh, these Jewish communities that were driven underground, and some of them persist up to the modern day. Uh, so like their paranoia about this wasn't wrong. It's just from a modern perspective, I guess. And from a humanitarian perspective, they were just wrong. Yes. yes. (laughs) It all depends on your perspective. (laughs) Yeah. It all depends on your point of view. Well, there is another aspect. We've talked a little bit about corruption and conspiracy. Um, I, I recently listened to the most extreme uh, conspiracy that I have yet witnessed. And it was very interesting as <laughs> for research for all of this information. And mm-hmm. I had come across a group of people known as the black nobility. And it was a group that mm-hmm. apparently you had two different groups, um, some that backed the Pope and some that didn't. And um, I guess kind of the late middle ages, I believe. 
And so with that, I wanted to know who they were because I also heard a random reference that someone made in an interview saying that they largely funded the Reformation and were behind it and pushing it. They wanted that to go through. <laughs> and, um, and then I heard something about the black merchants as well. I never figured out who the black merchants were. And whoever I was listening to the interview from, he could have been crazy. I don't know. But as I looked up <laughs> the black nobility, uh, apparently the theory is that it is a... A royal descent of this aristocracy that goes back thousands of years and even currently, <laughs> you know, runs the whole world behind the scenes. And <laughs> so the worst, uh, the most extreme that I heard was actually that this black nobility is ultimately controlled by the lizard people and that they're the ones who are ultimately in control and just use the black nobility to govern all of society. Of course, it all makes sense. Yes, yes, it all ties together. And so it, it, it was interesting. I'll say that. It was definitely interesting. But um, it, one thing that I was thinking of that I drew an example from was reading the history of Florence by Machiavelli. He talks about the Guelphs and the Ghibellines and one of them, I can't remember which had two factions that split off is the Bianca faction and the yeah. um, Neve faction or something. One was the white faction. One was the black faction. They were aristocracy. Mm -hmm. I have not been able to figure out if that is the same group as the black nobility. <laughs> and I haven't been able to find out any legitimate information aside from Wikipedia about who the black nobility were. Do you by any chance have anything you can enlighten me with? No. Okay. <laughs> Other than uh, the, uh, no, I don't even remember whether it was the Gelfs or the Ghibellines in Florence. Yeah. I, I think, I think it was, uh, I, so Dante was a, a Ghibelline. I think so. I think it's the Gelfs that won. And yes. then the Gelfs split after winning, because that's how this stuff works. Yes, yes. <laughs> if there's not an enemy, we will create one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. there's, there's no one I hate more than someone who agrees with me 99%, but disagrees with me 1%. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So, if you cannot help me with that uh, burning question that I've had, I will Alas. definitely continue researching. I <laughs> might find something. It's looking doubtful. Very doubtful. Yeah. But um, one thing that you probably could enlighten me on would be some other powers behind the scenes that might have actually been at play and real. And that would be something <laughs> like the power families of the Medici and the Borgias and the Fugurers and mm -hmm. those types of people. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the influence of some of these powers that were behind the scenes? They weren't, sometimes they were directly involved, but oftentimes they were more using their leverage to make power plays. How did that really work out and what influence did that have throughout these different times? It was much bigger in Italy. I will say, because uh, to a certain extent, the, the Italian political system was much more highly developed um, and it was much less, I, I mean, it was just less blatant and simple. You know, it, it's hard to talk about powers behind the throne in terms of the English political system when you're talking about, you know, eight or nine families and, and one of them never puts their guy forward to be king, but he always supports the winning side. Like that's not, that's sort of a power behind the throne, but that's also <laughs> just like doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, 
with with Italy, it was much more like with the the Medici's. They started out as bankers, and just by sort of being competent administrators. So there's this concept called patronage, uh, which I don't know if. I feel like you probably covered on this podcast at some point. I actually haven't, surprisingly. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that that's pretty basic to corruption. Um uh and it's it, but it's also one of these so corruption in general is also like it's one of these things where it's in the eye of the beholder where True. you know, modern campaign finance laws, you know, are technically legal. <laughs> yep, somehow. Even though we we think that they're kind of corrupt, but you know, so uh Patronage networks were essential to the functioning of the political system of societies going back to the Roman Empire. Um, essentially, you'd have a, a richer family who would provide material benefits to poorer families in exchange for favors. Uh, usually in the Roman Empire, it was support in elections, um, things like that. Um, it gets more complicated as you get more complicated systems. So the, the Medici's, but in general, in these, these Italian political systems, you would have, you know, some role for common people uh, at the very least, you know, show up with a, a bat when I need a mob kind yep. of thing. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the, these different families would build up gradually their, their patronage networks uh, the thing with the Italian families is that they were much more focused on the entire family, the entire clan. Again, in Northern Europe, you would have um, this focus on primogeniture, and it would concentrate wealth along one line. And then the second sons, people would sort of do their best to find spots for them. But but really, it, you know, and that helped concentrate wealth in these big families. In Southern Europe, you would have these extended clans that, yeah, the, the senior branch would always make sure that they were getting the lion's share of the inheritance and stuff like that. But, you know, the, the Medici's and the Borgias and the Fugger, as they moved sort of out of the commerce class and into more of an aristocratic situation where they were, they just had so much wealth that they didn't have to keep pursuing it. They would, you know, get their cousin as bishop over here. They'd get their brother as, you know, this important political office. And just sort of by building up these patronage networks and getting people put in key positions, they could end up taking over influence of the institutions of a society and things like that. Uh, without, you know, the, the Medici's uh, for, you know, I think they were in control of Florence for a good 200 odd years uh, without ever being, you know, declared a Duke or anything like that. They were always just like a first citizen or something like that based just on these patronage networks. Uh, the Borgias did similar things more on in Rome. Um, the Fugger I'm less familiar with, but it, this is just sort of how, um, you know, families worked it in in Italy in the Italian city state systems, um, and the the scramble over resources and patronage networks and things like that got so bad that most of the cities down there eventually decided to bring in higher administrators from outside to be like king for a year, 
<laughs> based on a contractual basis. And there, there became this, you know, professional class, they were called Podesta, that would move from city to city being administrators for a year. <laughs> wow. Um, and, you know, that, that was sort of, for a while, that was how a lot of these cities operated. Uh, in Milan, they, they tended towards dictatorships pretty quickly. Uh, most of the cities in, in Italy, on mainland Italy, ended up in some kind of dictatorship, especially in the north. Uh, of course, Rome had the Pope, which is, makes it a special case. Venice, though, had this really unique situation where they had a constitution that lasted for a good thousand years and never it really only got ended by Napoleon. Wow. <laughs> uh, the their electoral system was insane. Um, it, it, uh, it <laughs> I can't even begin to explain the levels of checks and balances in it. They're they're like every everyone would elect electors, and then those electors would elect electors, and then those electors would elect electors, and then those electors would elect electors, and then all of this was overseen by a board of people controlling the election processes and. It, it all sort of came down to the the Venetian families uh, were able to collectively agree that they feared each other more. They feared any one of them getting power more than they actually wanted power themselves. So <laughs> it was a, a balance of power kind of thing. Uh, and certainly there were a lot of people operating behind the scene there, but I think that's, that's a kind of a good example of, you know, that's the sort of level of intricacy and complexity of these Italian societies in general. And so there's much more of a scope for a person operating behind the scenes than say, you know, in a, in a Northern European monarchy where, you know, (laughs) you know, count uh, the, the Cardinal Richelieu was sort of a power behind the throne for uh, during the 30 years war. But it's not like he was behind the throne. Everyone knew <laughs> Cardinal Richelieu was the guy who was actually running the country. Sure. I mean, for, for a good portion of that, the kid was three. You know, the, the, the king was a, a three-year-old. <laughs> so, uh, and, and so on. So, uh, obviously, he aged. But, um, you know, the Cardinal Richelieu was, was hardly a power behind the throne. He was, he was in charge. So, um, I hope that answers your, your question. Yes. Yes, that's good. Um, so I guess if I am going to try to pull out my obligatory parallel here, we've got these patronage networks that these uh, merchants and power brokers um, they started to develop and they expanded, and that gave them a lot of power. This network of people that they could use to their advantage. Um, my parallel to the merchants is big tech. And so we definitely see social networks with these giant networks of people that they use to their advantage um, by collecting data in this modern time versus that time where it was more maybe political favors or votes or whatever the case may be, but very similar there at least. And we see that, um, like you had mentioned with my uh, feudalism, my attempt at a feudalism parallel that um, (laughs) we decided was prior to our current generation. And so it was... Um, more of a feudal system a few decades ago. It moved into a system where it was more focused on um, wealth and the almighty dollar and corporations expanding and making profits. It's profits above employees, and that's more what we've gotten into. And so uh, we do see that with these power families, uh, they kind of had 
all the wealth that they wanted and needed. And that was their main drive for a while was to get all this wealth, become wealthy and have this established position. And then as they got that, they achieved the wealth. And so um, what's next? Well, of course you go to power. And so a lot of times they went into having more of an influence in political systems and gaining more power of other kinds. And so, um, yeah, possibly we see um, a similar thing if we're carrying out some previous parallels I've mentioned here that if we see corporations trying to gain a little more uh, power as maybe people are losing trust in their governments, then it seems fairly similar to this where that's kind of what happens. And I, I guess it happens on an individual level as well. Once you gain all the money, all the wealth that you could want, like what's left? You can either just sit back and enjoy it, which plenty do, or if you're really driven, then who cares about wealth? That's not what really influences society. You're not influencing all these people. You're just basically living off your spoils. And so if you really want some power, if you really want to make an impact, then you've got to get power and you've got to get political power. You have to steer society in different ways. And that's usually played out very poorly uh, historically with those <laughs> types of individuals. But we even see, I've mentioned Trump before, that's, that's another good example, or maybe Bloomberg that's running for president currently, where mm -hmm. you have these people that could retire very easily right now and live very lavishly the rest of their lives and do whatever they want and have anything they want relatively. But instead, they are seeking these power positions. Now, you, you could say that they're doing it for the good of the people and they just want the country to you right. know, turn the right way. But uh, I, I think that historically, if we look at people going for large political power positions, that's generally not the way it actually plays out. And that's generally how they yeah. always campaign. And so it's it's <laughs> a little interesting here. We'll we'll see how it goes. But there are still some parallels. Yeah, I, I mean, I will say that they all certainly campaign that way, but, you know, pretty much, uh, let me say, you don't get uh, poor politicians. Yes. Uh, <laughs> people who, who enter the political class have some level of comfort and some ability to not worry about where their next meal is coming from, whether they're going to get fired uh, when they, they enter the political realm. So, I, I mean, uh, you could say the same thing about, you know, George Washington or Thomas Jefferson or pretty much any any political figure throughout time is, is someone who's made enough money that they can pretty much they could retire. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they they choose to do you know to enter the political realm and steer society for the good of the people or for their own political gain. You know, however you want to view it. There are plenty of people that have arguments against Washington, and so yeah, sure, yeah, <laughs> just sure. like any. That was just else, an example. Yeah anybody else yeah, yeah there's always two sides but but yes um that is definitely something that occurs and there are some legitimate reasons you've got like plato for example i believe it was plato or aristotle one of the two i think it was plato though that talked about how people with political power that are running a city or a state shouldn't be paid that they should be self-sufficient <laughs> and that is so that they won't be corrupted by the money and um, no one will control them and their purse strings uh, of course, these days people use that same argument as to why politicians should be paid. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so again, it's a matter of perspective. It's, you yes. know, from one perspective, it's a perfectly legitimate and logical argument. From another perspective, it's not. 
And if you look at Plato, for example, you might say he was being logical and rational and it was a well-thought-out position, but he also believed that you should breed the best uh, people in society. It was all about eugenics and you should censor yeah. everything, including poetry and music and everything. And so, yeah, it's just when you look historically, these uh, people and these groups are not they're not uh, very one-sided. They're, they're many-sided. <laughs> it is very complex. We've mentioned that before. It's not that there's yeah. one cause for the Reformation. It's that all of these things came together, and they were all there. All the pieces were there, and it just so happened that they all occurred within a time period that they could bounce off one of another, build off one another, and it, it happened. And um, even though similar things had happened in the past and tried to happen in the past, they didn't really do it. And um, yeah. I've made the example before about the Anabaptists. So you, you did have the Lutherans and you mentioned the Calvinists, but you also had the Anabaptists that were even more radical. Mm -hmm. And yes. really nothing happened. <laughs> they, they kind of yeah. fizzled out. They, they did their thing and they existed, but uh, uh, nowhere near the impact of something like Luther, Calvin and these groups. And so it, a lot of it does depend on all of these complexities that come together and these different influences from technology to economics to politics to religion, ideology. All of these things kind of, uh, they form movements and time periods, and it's not just a, a single thing. So uh, I guess that's one thing that uh, definitely stands out to me over all of these things that we've talked about is that it's very complex. There are many things involved. Yes. There are many factors. So I guess as I get into season two of my podcast and I get into these specific parallels, I'm going to be trying to pick out a single parallel per episode and elaborate on that one <laughs> parallel and maybe yeah. tie in some of these other factors. But, but yeah, you can't, you can't really take uh, five different parallels happening at one time during the Reformation and apply them exactly the same in modern times. It, it yes. doesn't work that way. And yeah. so with that, is there anything else that um, that maybe has stood out to you as we've been going through all these things and talking about parallels to modern times and things like that? Is there anything else that comes to mind as you've been thinking about these things and going through it all? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think the strongest parallel to me is the, the witchcraft trial thing, uh, which we, we've already talked about. It's just... Uh, um, a startling example of, of how, you know, you got this time where uh, a new technology sort of explodes the capacity of normal people to get information and uh, society is, doesn't have the wherewithal to sort out the good information from the trash information. And meanwhile, I, I mean, so this is actually something we didn't even talk about behind the scenes while everything is, all this stuff is going on, the seeds of the scientific revolution are starting. Ooh, yes. <laughs> you know, we have Kepler and, and uh, Tycho Brahe and all these people working away in the background. It would be centuries before normal people had heard about anything that they were doing. <laughs> that, that stuff was really limited to the, you know, the intellectual elites who cared and had, you know, saw that it was interesting in, in any way. Um, it really wouldn't be till Newton at a minimum that any of that stuff would start to explode into norm to regular society. Meanwhile, people are killing each other over stuff that's being publicized in the same medium. You know, <laughs> you, you have, you know, Kepler and them publishing their works and they're getting widely disseminated amongst intellectual circles. Meanwhile, the same printing press is spamming out stuff about witches. 
Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe not the same exact press, but it <laughs> could have been. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> the the big uh, the big intellectual conflicts of the time, you know, weren't even touching on the uh, the actual good information that was being produced, at least in terms of the mass the mass media or the mass consciousness. Yeah, that, that's an interesting point to make. I don't know if it if there's a direct parallel that I'm aware of. I probably wouldn't. Be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I'm sure there is. There's a parallel with everything. Don't you get that? so um i think you would agree with me that one of the most important things is education that like you mentioned there are these intellectual movements that were going on that really matter the scientific revolution was uh revolutionary and it definitely had a big impact Mm -hmm. on society but it largely uh wasn't on the radar for most people it was intellectual circles and elites that were processing this information and when you get to the internet in modern times, the hope would be that with this wealth of information (laughs) that the masses start educating themselves on things that actually matter and start to learn. But uh, what we see in reality is mostly pure entertainment and things like that. And so, yeah, yeah, I I don't know. Like you mentioned, technology changes rapidly and it seems like it can't be digested very well. People can't discern what's true and what's not. And yeah, I see that today. Um, I guess I'm hoping that's one of the things that I am hoping does not play out in the parallel that that I see, (laughs) Um, even though the trend seems to say that it probably will. Um, But yeah, that's something that I agree with you. It's very important that that we look at the potential of technology and that hopefully at least some of us, maybe a remnant of us can uh, use it to its full potential and actually learn from it and uh, build our knowledge and uh, talk to people and spread this stuff. Like you've got your podcast, I've got mine. Um, They're they're generally not ones about, you know, comedy and chatting about random days events. They're not true crime. They're not um, any of these other things (laughs) that um, may be interesting. They may be funny, uh, but it's, it's not really going to teach you anything. And so, um, yes, hopefully through this new medium of the internet and specifically podcasting, um, as well as other forms of using the internet in this digital age, hopefully we can have this digital reformation and hopefully it's a good thing. Um, but yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, so one of the, the parallels that's interesting is what sort of fixed things with, uh, after the the development of the printing press, it wasn't necessarily that the public got more discerning, that the printing industry consolidated. And then it was possible for society to hold printers accountable for the things that they were printing to a certain extent. So if we (laughs) we do have the consolidation of, let's say, tech firms or corporations, at least to some degree, then maybe... Then governments can hold them accountable for producing trash, trash information. Yes. You know, or if governments are losing power, then maybe the people hold them accountable. Uh, yeah. Less sure. likely, maybe. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that happened too. I mean, they, they, the government needed to, uh, the governments at the time needed to mobilize popular support to compete in the, the world that they were in, in terms of these new, more expensive armies and the, the expanding tax base and so ultimately what drove the development of you know modern uh 
somewhat liberal, small L liberal uh, uh, constitutional states was this need to uh, bring people on board and the people wouldn't get brought on board unless they could hold governments accountable in some way. Yes. Yes. Accountability is definitely a big deal that definitely came to prominence. Yes. After you have the rise of the printing press and centralization of these different groups. And it became a really big deal when you get into the enlightenment period and people really felt like they should have a say in their government And so, yeah, I would guess that as we move forward with whatever happens in today's day and age, we probably do see different groups consolidating power. We do see distractions that are going on all around us. We see power shifts that are going on behind the scenes that might not be as clear. Um, we, We see all these things happening, definitely. We don't know how they'll play out. We don't know what it'll be like. But yeah, I guess we can... Uh, do what we can to try to see what they are, prepare ourselves for whatever eventualities are likely at least, and maybe hopefully educate other people about this type of stuff and maybe just educate them in general. Maybe that's something (laughs) that society needs. I I certainly hope so. Yes, yes. I enjoy that. I think with that, I think we have done everything we can do today. Everything we could possibly talk about. Yes, (laughs) yes. So I want to say thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for uh, giving me this extended period of time to go over these uh, thousands of talking points here. And I I really (laughs) appreciate you coming on. I appreciate your perspective on different things and your expertise in this historical time period. I think it's something that Mm -hmm. will hopefully give the listeners a very good historical context to a lot of the things that I'll be discussing and fleshing out further in season two. And so thank you for coming on and doing that. Yeah, no problem. I had fun. So that concludes the interview with Benjamin Jacobs. Again, his podcast is Wittenberg to Westphalia, and it covers the history of the early modern period, the Middle Ages. Eventually, he will get to the Reformation and the Wars of the Reformation. At least that is what we are told, and it looks like he is getting there. It is uh, definitely a very in-depth podcast that covers a lot of very interesting stuff. A very good one. I listened to nearly all of it, really enjoyed it. So if you're into this time period historically, then definitely give it a shot and check it out. And uh, the other one to mention is the previous interview that I had done, the one with Steve Guerra in the History of the Papacy podcast. That is not necessarily a religious podcast, even though he talks about the papacy, and it's not just about uh, the theological aspects that were going on at the time historically. He gets into a lot of things like economics and politics and things that if you are listening to this, you are probably interested in. So those are the two history-focused podcasts that I would recommend checking out that I have checked out myself personally, and that is why they came on as guests on my show is because I thought that their shows were very good and very beneficial, and I wanted to share their views and their opinions and their expertise with you, the listener. In next week's episode, we will start the first section in another long interview that I did. This time, I partnered with 
Panoptic, which is a podcast with two different individuals. One is a change management consultant who has done some government contracting and things of that nature. The other is someone who focuses on philosophy and history. And so they were definitely a very good pair. I enjoy their podcast, relatively new, at least when I uh, first reached out to them. I'd listened to their first few episodes, really enjoyed it, and thought that they could definitely contribute a lot to this conversation and this topic for season two. And they did. It was a very good interview. Uh, turned out to be a very long interview again. So this one will also be broken up into multiple sections. And I have referenced it before, so I'm just uh, giving you another heads up of what to expect next week. I'll give a little bit of an introduction for that as I get started with next week's episode. And as a heads up, we do get into some other topics. The episode that we recorded was one that aired on their podcast feed as well as my own in the next few episodes. And so it was one that was good and interesting and relevant for their audience, not just an interview that I was doing with someone for my audience for season two of this podcast. So I do talk a little bit more than I have in these other interviews. And I, I give a little more and also get into a wider array of topics, but they all do connect with this theme and these parallels of looking at this time period of the Reformation and before and after and all the things that were going on, comparing that with modern times. We also do get a decent bit into what these patterns might foreshadow for the future. And a lot of that was a little bit prescient because we had COVID-19 and a lot of that stuff started happening. And I've talked about that in the uh, short series that I did with just myself in the middle of these interviews where I talked about some of these aspects of COVID-19 playing out similarly to the parallels that I've been talking about with others in these interviews. And we get into that kind of stuff. But again, that was before the COVID-19 pandemic, and so we definitely don't make any of those connections outright, but they are intrinsically there, and if you're paying attention, you can definitely see how some of that stuff does actually seem to be playing out. So it's pretty interesting. That is coming up next week. Other than that, I just want to say thank you very much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thank you to the patrons that are supporting financially, even though the economy is not really doing so hot right now. Um, you, you guys are still supporting me and giving me uh, money, and I am able to pay the bills, at least for this podcast, with that money and pay for hosting fees and that kind of stuff. So I, I really do appreciate that. I appreciate the support. I also appreciate those of you who have gotten on and left ratings and reviews. We don't have very many of those for this podcast. So everyone that gets on there and every individual rating and review does matter. It does count. It counts a lot more than your vote will count. So instead of voting, maybe get on here and leave me a rating and a review and you can have a greater impact on the world, unfortunately. So that's it for this episode. Please come back next week as we start the interview with Panoptic. I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.